We are in a series called About That Life, a teaching series, and we're going through the Jesus Sermon on the Mount, and it's about living a life where we actually follow Jesus. Now, for different people, I don't know what your background is, maybe you grew up in church or out of church, maybe you've never been to a church ever until today, maybe you grew up like in your mom's tummy going to church, whatever your story is, we all have to ask ourselves the question, am I actually following the Jesus of the scriptures? And so that's what the series is all about. We all need a refresh. We all need to ask ourselves, hey, where am I at with this Jesus guy? Am I actually a disciple? Am I actually following him? And so um, we've been in the series. And so, so far, what we've been doing is laying some foundation work to the series. Uh, Grant Clark of South African Accent, it just sounds so good every time you talk. Um, it's tough to follow. But what, what he did for the first two weeks is very eloquently, uh, he laid out, who is Jesus? And that was an important question to answer because he, we believe he preached the sermon. And so we want to look at, man, who is this Jesus? And then the second week we talked about what does it mean to be a disciple, which is also an important question to answer because the sermon was preached to disciples about how to live as a disciple. And then two weeks ago I taught on what literally what is the Sermon on the Mount. And, and that's an important question to answer because the context of something shapes the way you read it and understand it, and interpret it, and apply it. So to say, what is this? Uh, and then last week, uh, we shifted from answering questions to really getting into this life theme. And so Maria taught from the Beatitudes, the first uh, part of Jesus' teaching we've covered, and she talks about the kind of the counterintuitive, the good life. What does Jesus say the good life is? And so today, I'm going to look at another description of the life Jesus is describing for his disciples, and I'm going to talk about the distinct life. The distinct life, the distinctive life, okay? So if you have Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 11. Um, we use the CSB, it's God's favorite version, but if you have another one, that's totally okay. <laughs> the Apostle Paul is the senior editor of the uh, New Testament. All right, uh, here we go, uh, translation. All right, here we go, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 11, Jesus says, You are blessed when they insult you. And persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you. Aren't you guys feeling blessed right now? Because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so in this text, Jesus is calling us to distinct or different lives. Uh, but being different can be a hard experience for most human beings. Uh, I grew up in South San Diego, and the way that we got to South San Diego is my family was from the Boston area. My dad joined the Navy when he was like 20. They move out. Um, they moved to San Diego. Uh, the only place they can afford to live at the time was in the South Bay. He was stationed in Coronado. They weren't Enlist, like they weren't going to live in Coronado. Uh, with the money he was making at the time, they didn't have the same uh, Navy housing and stuff like that. And so South San Diego is pretty affordable for us. We jumped down there. 
And uh, so I come from this family. Uh, my little sister, I think, is like one when this happens. Uh, I start going to school. My parents shortly after get a divorce. And what I um, and I say all that to say is like I didn't have this big family I belonged to that was really obvious, like a, a thing that I was a part of that was bigger than me, like a group of people who I felt like similar, like like we were kind of the same, right? Um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, I didn't have a group of cousins who had the shared experience of the same grandparents. We've been to similar, you know, family functions or whatever. We didn't, we didn't go to church growing up. We go to a Catholic school, uh, Catholic church every once in a while, like very rarely. Uh, there's some amazing followers of Jesus who would identify as Catholic. Um, we were not those people. Uh, and, um, and so anyways, I, I was just really aware of my difference uh, growing up. Cause I was like, man, where do I fit? Who is like me? Who is same to me? And it was really brought home, um, by the ethnic reality of where I lived. I grew up in South San Diego, uh, in my kindergarten class, uh, pretty much everyone was Mexican except for me. There was one Filipino kid. There's a black kid named Quentin. I'll never forget him. Um, cause it just, we, there wasn't many people who were Mexican and his dad was in the Navy. Uh, and then there was, there was one other white kid named Weston. It's a very white name. And uh, they were Mormon. So it was like, we're out here doing some things for the Mormon church. Like, uh, I don't know. And, uh, and then it was, it was me, you know. And, uh, and I, just, I was just different, you know. Um, and there was parts of it that were really cool, but I was very aware often, like, this is a different culture. I remember I learned the days of the week in Spanish before I learned them in English, uh, which is kind of a cool thing. You know, it's like, lunes, martes, mercoles, jueves, viernes, sabado. And then they end up be like, the days of the week, you know, being English. And... And it was cool. Yeah, it was really inefficient. Uh, now they have like immersion programs. Like your kid can like learn Spanish or learn German or whatever. Um, I, had, I grew up in bilingual education in South San Diego, which was we just do it in Spanish and then in English. And it's really slow. <laughs> and, uh, and that's what we were doing. And uh, I was the only kid who would turn red on the playground. So I was affectionately nicknamed Tomate because I, I would look like a tomato. And, um, and here's the thing. When you're a kid, you really don't want to be different. Like, you're bothered by it. It's not cool, like, Enneagram 4, edgy, fashionably late. You know, like, I'm this, you know, unique, interesting guy. I'm a mystery, like, in high school. You know, high school, a new person, they're like, well, it's, they're a mystery. Like, who is that? Who are their friends? Where they come from, you know? Um, w when you're really little, it's just hard to be different. Uh, Sesame Street kind of points this out. If you guys remember this, they do, like, a compare and contrast game. It was like, which one of these doesn't belong here? Uh, it was like, Andy. Andy doesn't belong here. Andres, if that's your real name. Um... And so, uh, man, I had that feeling. And here's the thing. Young Andy felt something that I think is true to most human experience. And it's we want to have a place where we feel like we belong, where, 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 where we're not different, where people get us, where we feel known and, and understood. And I don't want to, like, stay on the ethnic side of this. That's a real reality for a lot of ethnic minorities. For me, I felt it in kind of a different way and where I grew up. Uh, but what I want to hit is, is for whatever reason, we don't like to be different in a bad way. Um, Jesus, here's the thing though in this text, Jesus is calling us to be different from the world around us, to, be, to choose to be another. He's calling us to, to be distinct, uh, not from a human culture, but distinct from the world's system. And so today I want to talk about what does it mean to be different? Uh, so I have a quick little outline. It's this, we are called to be distinct from the world, which means we will have a different God, different ethics, different ambition, different love. A different God, different ethics, different ambition, uh, different love. Jesus calls his followers to be salt and light. Now, we did a sermon series called Salt and Light. I, 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 took, I took three to four angles on salt and on light and, what, and how to apply that. And we, we did a deep dive on that. Where it's like, if you want to look into that, you can. 
Um, I'm not going to emphasize that today. What I want to emphasize is that salt, when it comes in contact with something, it's different to the thing it came in contact with or it wouldn't be necessary. Does that make sense? Um, if it already had salt in it, you know, I mean, there's never too much salt in my opinion ever on food, but hot take, I know. Um, but, but generally it's like, Hey, it doesn't need it if it wasn't there. Same thing. If it's truly dark, there's no light. So, 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 so light is the opposite of darkness and, and salt uh, is the, is the opposite of, you know, it's awesome. It's the opposite of stuff without salt in it. And so, um, it's, it's different. And the scholars really like, like reading, uh, uh reading some commentaries and stuff, like they really emphasize like the big idea here, um, is just that Christian, it's like, it feels like a no-duh thing, but it's less and less no-duh. Christians are supposed to be different from non-Christians. That's Jesus saying. It might feel like a no-duh thing. He's like, hey, we're not the same. Not in an exclusive mean way, just in the, the reality of who we think Jesus is and what he calls us into. Or we shouldn't be the same. Um, John Stott, an uh, Anglican um, scholar, commentator, he says, the basic truth which lies behind these metaphors and is common to them both is that the church and the world are distinct communities. On the one hand, there is the earth. On the other hand, there is you, who are the, who are the earth's salt. On the one hand, there is the world, and on the other hand, there is the you, you are the world's light. It is true that the two communities, they and you, are related to each other, but their relatedness depends on their distinctiveness. It is important to assert this clearly in our day. By the way, he wrote this like, the early 70s. Um, it's important to assert this clearly in our day in which it is theologically fashionable to blur the distinction between the church and the world and to refer to all of humanity indiscriminately as the people of God. So what does it mean to be distinct from the world? Um, first, before we can answer that question, we need to answer another question. What is the world? Uh, what, is, what does the world mean here? Um, there's a couple different meanings of the Greek word for world in the New Testament. Uh, that doesn't freak you out too much. We have this in English. Uh, example, that would be the word date, right? Um, a date could be a specific day on a calendar, right? Think about it. If someone walks up to you and says, I have a date for you, it can mean so many things. <laughs> Depending on who it is, you might be really excited, really bummed out, or really confused. It could be a really delicious sweet fruit, like boom, got a date. It could be a guy or a girl, you've been kind of jonesing, you're like, oh, I think this is it. They're like, I have a date for you. Like, yeah, um, my, uh, our friend's baby shower is in two weeks. It's on the 21st or whatever. <laughs> like, oh, it's a literal day. Or it could be, yeah, a romantic, you know, date or whatever. So, so again, uh, different, different meanings for the same word. Um, so one word in the New Testament is literally the word for world. Like when you think of globe or world, when we use it today, like all over the world, you know. Uh, the physical world we live in. Uh, another way is just to describe humanity in general. This would be like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Uh, and then the other one is uh, the one I'm going to talk about today, and it describes a system where humanity lives apart from God. This is the idea, like back in the day, they called it being worldly. And when they were saying that, they weren't like that you live in the worlds. They're saying you have a value system uh, that, that is true of this world's. Uh, Dallas Willard has a definition of the world and the way that we're going to talk about it today. He says, our cultural and societal practices that are under the control of Satan and thus opposed to God. Uh, a big example of this would be like slavery, systemic racism, um, also systemically the way that we're redefining sexual ethics right now. It's like getting jammed down your throat all the time. New sexual ethic, new sexual, new sexual ethic. It, everything is, is saying that simultaneously. It's the world banding together. Kind of, it really... Uh, 
the world and the way we're going to look at it is peer pressure to rebel against God and what he said is true, if that makes sense. It's, it's a pull towards something. Um, John Mark Comer's definition, uh, by the way, uh, I'm going to quote twice from his book, uh, Live Not Lies. It's a really good book, man. Like I, every time I read it, I'm like, this is real, real good. Um, he defines the world this way. He says, a system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and eventually institutionalized in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. And so it's how we're influenced by the ideas of those who do not follow or worship Jesus. Uh, John chapter 17, uh, Jesus would describe the world in this way. He says, I have given them your word, talking about his disciples. He says, the world hated them because they are not the world, just as I, just as I am not of the world. I think we have the, the text. I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they may be sanctified by the truth. And sanctified means set apart, is all it means. He's saying, in this world, you need to be set apart or different. I've done a lot to make that happen. Uh, later on in the New Testament, the Apostle John describes our relationship to the world this way. This third use of the word world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Which, by the way, is how you know it's not talking about humanity. We're called to love humanity all the time. For everyone in the world, everyone in this system, for everyone in the world, verse 16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but it is from this worldly system. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. This is this idea of a, a new ambition, which we'll get into in a second. But the world really is peer pressure to conform with the value system of those who don't follow or love Jesus. How many of you guys ever feel this pull, like in your day-to-day -day life? Anybody? Okay, cool. Uh, right, like we, we, we experience this. So how are we called to be different? A couple different ways. The first one is we, we should have a different God if we're followers of Jesus. So it might seem obvious. There's a ton of stuff on like YouTube. These guys are like Christians. Are like Jesus is like an idea to me, an idea I love, but an idea I can, I can make it, you know, and it's like, oh man, it's just a different thing. Like it's fine. You've got a guy named Jesus. That's not how Jesus has revealed himself. Uh, and so, again, uh, a different God. We, we, we approach things our culture worships differently than they do. Our culture worships all kinds of things, money, sex, power. We engage with money, sex, and power, but not in a way where we're worshiping it. We worship God. By the way, we engage with those things that are usually considered idols in our culture. Does that make sense? So we have a different God uh, that impacts everything we do, big picture to, to, to little from our, our, our career, our calling, who we marry, youth sports, relationships, um, on and on and on it goes. We offer our entire lives, our singleness, our sexuality, our marriages, our parenting, we offer it all to Jesus and say, how do you want us to worship you with what you've given us? Again, we should engage all those things, not as people who worship them, but as people who enjoy them, but worship Jesus. So we should have... Um, a different God, we should also have different ethics. Spend a, ch a chunky time here. Uh, different ethics. Um, the world will have different ethics than us. They often, 
that's a big uh, key idea. They'll often call evil good and good evil. That's what the world does. Um, and there's a precedence for this in Scripture in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. The prophet says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, and substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And when you look at that second verse where it says, they substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, we can't be light if we're actually living in darkness. I hope you catch that with the salt and light idea. We have to be distinct. Jesus himself, he, he says this, he says, woe in another place. In Luke chapter 6, he says, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So if, 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 if people in a worldly system all think you're amazing, you do need to ask, like, am I actually living out and proclaiming the, 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 the person, work, and ways of Jesus? Like, am I doing that? By the way, this doesn't mean being a jerk. Uh, it doesn't say, um, woe to you if anyone likes you, okay? That's not what Jesus says. It's not like, woe to you if anyone doesn't think you're a jerk on social media. That's, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, you know, some people will, but some people will, like, despise you. They're going to hate for what you stand for. You're going to get, you'll get blasted at times. Jesus isn't saying it's wrong for people to like you. He's saying it's wrong if they like you because you're just like them. Because you embrace everything they embrace and love everything that they love. You call evil good and evil. You call evil good and good evil like they do. Again, quoting John Mark Comer again. Um, he says, I can only wonder at God's emotional response to the redefinition of good and evil in our society. And he's got this list. He says, a society where lust is redefined as love. Marriage, not as a covenant of lifelong fidelity, but a contract for personal fulfillment. Divorce as an act of courage and authenticity rather than the breaking of vows. The objectification of women's sexuality through porn as female empowerment. Greed as responsibility to shareholders. Gross injustice towards factory workers in the developing world as globalism. Environmental degradation as progress. Uh, the deracination de and gentrification of once thriving local communities, economies, is free market capitalism. Racism is a past issue. Infanticide is reproductive justice. That is the world's current approach to ethics. But on the flip side, the church has always been called to live a different way in the to the world around it. Um, there's another amazing book I've read lately. Um, it's called The Air We Breathe. I'm not going to quote from it, but I'm going to summarize the idea. But it's a real good book, man. Uh, it's called The Air We Breathe, How We All Came to Believe in Freedom, Kindness, Progress, and Equality uh, by Glenn uh, Shrivener. This is an Australian theologian. And in the book, he points out that before the gospel goes out through the church in human history, and to this day, in countries where the gospel has never been established, you don't have so many of the virtues we take for granted in Western society. For example, and, and he says, man, so often people who have rejected Jesus, have you guys heard this concept before? They, they want the kingdom without the king. They've rejected Jesus, but they want the stuff Jesus brings. So, for example, there's no society in the history of the world that believes in equality before Jesus came. I'm not making that up. You, you can look into it. Do a lot of studying. Uh, the Imago Dei, this idea that, 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 that humanity is made in the image of God, not the image of their king, who they would serve, a human king, 
but that they're made in the image of God, not just men, women too, which is revolutionary for women's rights. Without it, you don't have it. Women's rights change overnight in the Roman Empire, and they continue to change because of the church, even though we act like that's not true. The foundation for that happened here. Um, compassion, uh, value of human life. Um, infanticide was a commonplace and opposed by the early church. They often would rescue babies left for dead and raise them. Often they would leave girls to die, to be killed by the elements or a wild animal. And the church had, it, had ministries of going out and adopting these babies and raising them as their own. The idea that everyone's life should matter, again, this idea of having compassion for people who can't like, stay alive themselves, that's a Christian idea. It's a, um, it's a biblical idea. So if you go, um, if you believe in non-theistic evolution, I'm not talking theistic evolution where there's a God who used evolution to bring us forth, but a non-theistic, truly random, you know, natural selection. If you believe in that, we're just highly evolved animals. And if we are that, then compassion doesn't make any sense. It's like, am I bigger than you? I'm going to eat you. I'm going to take your stuff. I watch animal. I watch, uh, dude, we've, we've been dog sitting uh, for the last day. A fr our French bulldog friend across the street is a puppy with our Boston Terrier, and they're wild with each other. Like the stuff they do to each other, it's very animally, all right? Uh, it's stuff that, like, if any of you guys did it to me, it's over. We're not friends anymore. <laughs> they're like, I'm just saying hi. We're just getting started, right? <laughs> and they just do whatever they want, and they take stuff from each other, and they bite each other, do all stuff. And it's just like, oh, we're just chilling. We're animals. It's what we do. If you apply that to humanity, and a lot of the world has over the years, I can just take whatever I want. You can go full Nietzsche. I can kill someone and not feel a thing. That's the height of virtue. Another thing they talk about in the book uh, is dude, just sexual consent. I don't think you guys realize how new that is and how it was the teachings of the early church that brought that about. Uh, when Paul, we get really caught up on, like, he says we can't have sex with whoever we want because our culture is like consenting adults. When Paul was telling husbands in the ancient Mediterranean world, to like wealthy husbands, to control their sexual urges, to only sleep with their spouse, that was like crazy. Like, like, like you have no idea why it was so scandalous. And why it was scandalous wasn't like today because they're like, man, sex positivity, free love, we're doing it. You know, um, it was, I can rape whoever I want. I'm a wealthy nobleman. You know, I, I'm a man in this society. If I'm a man of status, I do what I want when I want. That's the history of the world. And so to go, no, 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 you don't. God created. You don't use it however you want. It's not just a random bodily function that you can do whatever. And again, because people are made in God's image, they're valuable. You don't get to just do whatever you want to them either. So these things go together. They're massive um, in terms of how the church has like lived differently. Science, again, you, you go on and on and on. Freedom, where we got the idea that you should control your own life. That is pretty new in the history of the world if you guys uh, have looked into it. The church, uh, part of the church, not the whole church, but part of the church was complicit in the transatlantic slave trade. And what made it so awful was everything in the scripture would push back on that. But the other thing you need to know is, is it doesn't change the fact that Christians were still the first people in the history of the world to ban slavery. Over and over and over again. And everywhere the gospel's been, slavery has, has been banned. And, ha and was for a long time. And institutions influenced by nations where slavery had been banned. You can go on and on. And, and we have the world we have now and, and and so i just want you guys to see that living counterculturally is good news 
Like it really is. Like we really do have something people desperately need. We have the foundation to live a, a good and beautiful life. We want to have different ethics. Uh, we also want to have different character. Um, just a, a quick subpoint on this. Just this idea of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Guys, pretty much everyone who's going to therapy, it's, they want that. I'm not hating on therapy. I love therapy. I might become a therapist someday. I'm not hating on I'm just saying, like, this is stuff people want. Most of what therapy is is what's getting me in the way of experiencing this thing that God calls the fruit of the Spirit. What of my past is keeping me from this? What of my present is keeping me from this? How am I living my life in such a way that's keeping me from these things? What are my, um, uh, my physiological realities keeping me from experiencing these things? And we've got a Holy Spirit who goes, man, I'll, I'll teach you to walk an abundant life, which is what the Sermon on the Mount is going to get into a lot of, with anxiety and anger and lust. Like there's freedom in, in Jesus' ways, but they do stand out. They're different. Go on social media. That's not what you're, <laughs> love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentle, right? That's not mostly what you're getting. But we can live in that space. Um, uh, we also want to have a different ambition, a different ambition. We see this tucked away in our text today in Matthew 5, 16. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. For the true follower of Jesus, we have a different purpose we want to bring glory to God with our lives, which, again, is so basic, but it's not. Sometimes we get caught up on th the end should be glorifying Jesus with our life. And, uh, and there's a means. He's given you a specific career or vocation or calling or a set of relationships or um, resources to steward or whatever it is. And we, we build our lives on having a great career or having people think I'm pretty or awesome right? Or, or, or having a ton of money or um, whatever it is, uh, having this role. And you go, no, no, all those things have been entrusted to you to help people see how beautiful and good and powerful Jesus is, the Father is. And so we, we, do you have that, um, that different um, ambition? It's not bad to have, by the way, I'm saying your highest ambition. It's not bad to want to be a CEO by the time you're 40 or whatever. Some of you guys are walking with like goals on goals on goals on goals. I'm a big pro goal guy. Go get it, all right? Dad joke, you know, dad joke. It's not bad to have ambition. It's not bad to want to get married. It's not bad to, to want to stay single. It's not bad to want to travel. It's not bad to want to have kids. It's not bad to um, make a lot of money even. But what you do with that is what determines, man, it, what's your motivation? What's your ambition? Are those things ends in and of themselves, or are they means to an end, which is making Jesus look beautiful? Which is also pretty fun for us when we're doing it. If we're doing it right. And then last but not least, um, we should have a different love. Our ethics absolutely should be different. Our character should absolutely be different. Our ambition should absolutely be different. But man, our love should be so different to what passes, what passes for love these days. I don't know if you caught this. Jesus, in our text, is talking about loving people who he just said will be persecuting you. He actually says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're just nice to people who are like you, anyone can do that, right? Hitler did that, you know, whatever. Like, like people are like, yeah, I kind of like you. You're like, this is cool. He's saying, what about people who are not just different to you, 
but they're opposed to you. They're actively hurting you. What do you do? I mentioned this before. Dallas Willard said that um, uh, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, but, but he said um, the greatest test of like the, the, the most spiritually mature you person is a person who can practice spontaneous enemy love. Spontaneous enemy love. When you're so God, you're like, even when someone's actively, I didn't plan on it. I didn't plan on getting persecuted today or someone, you know, you know, hurting me today or whatever, and I'm going to love them even though they don't deserve it. But where do we find that kind of love? And the reality is, is we've experienced a different kind of love. It's a cliche, but it's true, man. Hurt people hurt people. Loved people love people. People who know they're secure and loved. If you want to use therapeutic terms, they, they, they've got a solid attachment. They know they're loved. They go love people. When we, we, when we know we are loved by the triune God, no matter what, and we know the price he, 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 he went to, you may know the price he paid to have us. It transforms everything about our capacity to love. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, it says, We love because he first loved us. I think one of my, my greatest privileges in my role is sitting with you all and getting to listen to your stories, even the hard parts. And I know enough about all of you, or about a lot of you, to say that a lot of you have reasons you could fall back on and go, I don't think God loves me. It could be sin you struggle with, it could be suffering you're enduring, but there's something in you that goes, am I really loved? And John's going, you're really loved. Jesus loves you just as you are. If you believe that, you will change. You won't stay the same way. But who you are in this moment, you're not behind. He's not going to love a future version of you. When he goes to the cross, he dies for all your sins, past, present, and future. And so we have been loved, family. Even the most jacked up version of you that you don't want to bring to church. Maybe that's how you feel today. He loves you. It's like, I'm glad you're here because it seems like you need grace. And that's what we have to offer. It's all we have to offer. And when we've experienced being loved by someone who should reject us, who should have punished us, who should have cast us aside, the Bible says we were God's enemies when Jesus died for us. When we experience that kind of love, we can love people who the world says are our enemies.